Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. The 19th century motivational author and speaker Orison Martin once wrote, There is no medicine like hope, no incentive so great, no tonic so powerful as the expectation of something better tomorrow. One reason why Martin may have written this is that even by the 19th century, it was widely accepted that a person could live up to 70 days without food, almost 10 days without water, and up to six minutes underwater without air. But there is one thing, one thing it is impossible for people to live without, and that is hope. We all need hope, and so did Jesus' disciples. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. If you haven't done so already, pull out the sermon notes you received when you came in this morning. And if you uh, still need a sermon note handout or a Bible, you can, you can borrow one of our Bibles, which are back on the welcome table. Matthew 28 describes what happened on the first Easter. And I want us to read this together so that we can have some context of what I'm going to be talking about today. In Matthew 28, it's three days after Jesus had been crucified and buried in a tomb. The Pharisees thought that they had defeated their biggest threat to their religious power. The Romans thought they had eliminated an insurrectionist who was claiming to be king of the Jews. And the disciples thought that they had lost their leader. But this was not the case. Jesus was simply doing and had done what he had come to do and it said he was going to do. Let's refresh our memories on what actually happened on that first Easter morning. Please follow along with me as I read so that you can see this with your own eyes instead of just taking my word for it. Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. That's right. You see where it comes from. Right there in Matthew 28. And he has risen as he said. That's important to note too. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and 
took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Well, it's important to remember that the true meaning of Easter is not about a bunny or renewing our love for chocolate. Easter celebrates the fact that the tomb in which Jesus was buried couldn't hold him and that he is alive today. Sadly, today, and dating all the way back to the first century, though, there, there have been professing believers in even certain churches who have denied the resurrection or doubted its reality. And one such group belonged to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul confronts their disbelief, among other things, in a letter called 1 Corinthians. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we'll be spending the remainder of our time together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just hang a right, go past Romans, and you'll run into 1 Corinthians. As you turn there, let me give you some background on this letter and a little bit of context. According to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul planted the church in Corinth around 51 AD. Two years later, when he was in Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians addressing some problems that they were having, and that letter unfortunately created a misunderstanding, and that letter was eventually lost. As problems continued to get worse in the Corinthian church, a delegation of three men were sent from Corinth to Ephesus to seek Paul's counsel on issues that were dividing the church. There was unresolved conflict between church members, unrepentant sexual immorality, lawsuits taking place between church members, unhealthy marriages, unbiblical divorces, the abuse of spiritual gifts, fighting over the Lord's Supper, and much more. Sounds like the kind of church you'd want to visit, right? Scholars actually believe there were up to four letters written by Paul to the Corinthians. Only two, though, were saved, and I think the other two were lost. Only two made it into the canon of Scripture, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's worth noting that 1 Corinthians is as long as, it's 16 chapters, it's as long as Romans was, uh, also 16 chapters, but Keep in mind, most of 1 Corinthians is problem-solving, not doctrine like Romans. And the Corinthians got a second letter from Paul, 2 Corinthians, which is 13 chapters long. I say all that to say the church in Corinth got more content from Paul than any other church. They needed more help than any other church. And they had more problems than any other church. It's so... The Apostle is responding to these problems when he writes 1 Corinthians, and it's around 54 to 55 AD. In addition to all the sin problems that I just mentioned, there were some significant doctrinal problems, one of which was a significant group of people in the church who did not believe in the future resurrection of believers. 
And so Paul wants to address that. Thus, our big idea for today, or what I sometimes call the sermon in a sentence, if I could boil it all down to a Twitter post, it would be this. Jesus Christ's resurrection is a preview of the Christ followers' future resurrection. Jesus Christ's resurrection is a preview of the Christ followers' future resurrection. Now, most of the believers in Corinth were saved out of a culture drenched in traditional Greek philosophy. Now, this is important because Greek philosophers taught that the soul was imprisoned by the body until death. And then after death, they believed that the soul was set free from the body. Thus, when Paul preached that believers would be given new bodies at a future resurrection, the Corinthians scoffed at this idea because of their background and thought, why on earth would, would you want to put the soul back into the body, back into its prison? And this was a major major doctrinal issue that Paul just couldn't leave alone. And one reason is because bad theology always leads to bad thinking, and bad thinking leads to bad behavior. Now, many of us have heard this word resurrection for years, but do we really know what it means? And so in order to remove some of the familiarity that we have with this term, Here's a simple, memorable definition of a resurrection for you. It's simply the reversal of death or restoration of life. A resurrection is the undoing of the undoable. It's undoing what's undoable for everyone else in world history. It's returning from the point of no return. The, the statistics on death are unchanging, right? One out of one people die. There's no debating that. But only one man out of a billion people who have died in 2,000 years came back from death. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the promise of a future resurrection is just one of numerous benefits granted to the true Christ follower. And that's what Paul wants us to be encouraged by today. And so if you would look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And there are four truths that Paul wants to teach us this morning. He writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Here's the first point on your outline. I want to encourage you to take notes and Write down the things that God is teaching you uh, this morning as we look at His Word together. Uh, there's a lot of encouragement I'm going to share with you that you're going to need, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, or maybe next year. The first point is this, the past resurrection of Jesus can be proven circumstantially. The past resurrection of Jesus can be proven circumstantially. And what do I mean when I say 
circumstantially. Well, I mean that it can be proven indirectly. There are at least two points that Paul implies in these first four verses. And this would be letter A and B on your outline. The first point that Paul infers or implies is that Jesus predicted this would happen. That he would be crucified, dead, buried, and would rise again. We see it in verses 3 and 4. If you look there in your Bible, this is perhaps the most, well, it is the most succinct explanation of the gospel in the entire New Testament. And notice the repeated phrase, according to the Scriptures. So Paul, as he's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's, re- he's writing Scripture himself and using his apostolic authority. Notice how he is writing to the Corinthians, citing Scriptures that have already been recorded. The apostles not only referring to the Old Testament prophecies that predicted Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but also the many times in the Gospels that Jesus said he would be crucified, buried, and raised. Multiple times he said this. Next, uh, letter B, Jesus definitely died. You can see that in verse 4. Paul says that he was buried. Only dead people need to be buried. Living people usually aren't, unless they're in a movie or a YouTube video having fun. And this refutes one of the arguments that critics have tried to use in order to discredit the resurrection. That is, they try to argue that Jesus wasn't really dead. And so somehow he must have escaped the tomb. However, it would have been humanly impossible, humanly impossible for that to happen. For Jesus to survive his crucifixion to escape. Because Jesus hung on a cross for six hours next to two other criminals. It was the custom of Roman soldiers to speed up the arrival of death by breaking the legs of the prisoners so they could no longer pull themselves up to breathe. But John chapter 19 tells us the soldiers did not break Jesus' legs because they already saw he was dead. And additionally, in Luke 23, we're told by Luke that crowds of witnesses saw Jesus die on the cross. So, the past resurrection of Jesus can be proven circumstantially. Now let's look at the text again, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. And Paul, he wades deeper into this issue, making his case not only for the resurrection of Christ, But he's going to also then connect it to the hope of a future resurrection for believers. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Kephas, which is another name for Peter. Kephas means rock. That's a name that Jesus gave to Peter. Then to the twelve. Verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a metaphor, by the way, for death in the Bible, meaning they're temporarily in the grave, but won't be forever. Verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
Here's number two in your outline. The past resurrection of Jesus can be proven experientially. The past resurrection of Jesus can be proven experientially. In verses 5 through 9 that I just read, Paul lists several eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive and well after his resurrection. Notice he says that Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This would have been the Lord's inner circle. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus ate with them after he was resurrected. And that's important, by the way, because ghosts don't eat or drink because they don't have a material body. So it wasn't the ghost of Jesus. It was the real resurrected body of Jesus. We also know from Luke 24 that Jesus taught them, walked with them, and touched them physically. Next, we're told, if you see there in your Bible, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. This is significant because it's impossible to get that many people to tell the same lie about the same event. This is Paul giving a a truckload, a mountain load of evidence to prove that Jesus really was alive. He wasn't just, so it wasn't just the 12 who were trying to pass along or, excuse me, fuel this conspiracy that Jesus was alive. It wasn't the 12 who were on drugs or something or hallucinating. No, no, he said, no, Jesus appeared also to 500 other brothers, 500 of them. That's a medium-sized church who all saw him at the same place in the same time and could concur. Yeah, that's Jesus. That's the one I saw die on the cross a few days ago. Paul even goes further to say that most of these witnesses are still alive. He says that because he's trying to tell the Corinthians, hey, if you want to go look them up, you can. Some of them are still here. You want to go knock on their door and interview them? Feel free, they'll tell you with their first-hand experience, what they saw. Notice then he says in verse 7 that the Lord appeared to James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. There are references in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers did actually, they didn't believe in him. They didn't trust in him for their salvation while he was still on earth. We see that, for example, in John chapter 7, verse 5. However, Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers were all praying in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. And then, of course, we know James became a key leader in the early church, serving on the sort of the Supreme Court Council for the church in Acts chapter 15. And so what this means is that his brothers trusted in Christ after the resurrection. They saw him resurrected and went, okay, now, now we believe. Now we get it. And this is significant because it also means Jesus' brothers didn't have biased eyes of faith when Jesus was buried. So, so they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't trying to find a way to believe what Jesus, or to kind of make themselves see something that they wanted to see. 
That's, some, that's another thing that critics like to say. Well, of course, all the Christians are going to say that Jesus was resurrected because y'all want him to be resurrected. Instead, Jesus' own brothers, who were the, the last to believe in him, then believed after seeing him resurrected. They came to faith because they saw their brother resurrected. And so James is another reliable witness. Notice in verse 7, he also says, Then to all the apostles. This could refer to the larger group of disciples that Jesus sent out. Uh, In Luke chapter 10, there's a reference to uh, the 70 group of disciples. It would be the larger group of followers that he had besides the 12. Uh, Or this could refer to the 120 disciples that were in the upper room when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Regardless, though, this would be another group of reliable witnesses that Paul's listing for the Corinthians. Hey, you want to talk to them? Go, you know, I'll give you names and addresses, man. You can go interview them. Finally, Paul lists himself as another key witness. One of the last people on earth you would expect to believe in Jesus Paul, who even calls himself the the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because verse 9, I persecuted the church of God. That means he's he's trying to say, and you can read Paul's story in Acts. He comes to Christ in Acts chapter 9, but Paul's saying, hey man, I I was one of the critics. I I hated Christians. I arrested them and had them killed. I did not want his message to get out. But that all changed when, the, when an anvil got dropped on my head in Acts chapter 9 and the resurrected Christ appeared to me and changed my life. I'm paraphrasing for Paul, of course, but the point is that Paul had no motivation or reason to lie about the resurrection. He was a critic. He had no bias to want to dream up some resurrection. And yet, the very man who persecuted the Lord's church, jailed believers, killed them, ends up being chosen by God to be the apostle who would plant these churches and write these letters. Isn't it fascinating how the Lord works? Hmm. Yeah, I think I'll use him. The one right there who's been killing my people and hates me. I'm going to use him to be the best church planner that ever lived. I'm going to use him to write more than half of the New Testament. That'll be perfect. Because he'll know the whole time I'm using him, he cannot take any bit of credit for it. He'll know I get all the glory for it. So, it's important for all of us to know that the resurrection is the defining distinctive that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Every other religion worships a dead leader, but Christ followers worship a risen Savior. So Jesus Christ's resurrection is a preview of the Christ follower's future resurrection. 
Let's look at the next paragraph, verses 12 to 19. So Paul, I mean, he's just leading these guys along, getting ready to just destroy them. It's, I feel bad for the Corinthians, but he's just, he's just drawing them in, and he's just going to dismantle their logic. And here he goes. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's number three in your outline. The future, the future resurrection of Christ's followers can be proven logically. The future resurrection of Christ's followers can be proven logically. That's what the apostle is doing here. You notice in verse 12, when he asks a rhetorical question, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This verse is important because it reveals not only the motive for his writing, but also the purpose behind his writing this entire chapter. This is a quote. Paul is quoting the anti-resurrection group in Corinth. That delegation that was sent to him probably told him what these people were saying. And so Paul turns the quote on them. How can you say this? And then he goes on to list four problems with doubting Jesus' resurrection. This would be letters A, B, C, and D in your outline. The first problem is that Paul says, A, our preaching and faith are worthless. If, if Christ has not been resurrected, our preaching and faith are worthless. So not only, not only was this group's thinking flawed, he's trying to point out it's heretical. It's they're sinning by not believing this. They're, they're calling God a liar. And so because Jesus predicted his resurrection and then he did it, the Corinthians were unintentionally, I think, calling him a liar. This is why having a fully orbed biblical theology is so important for every believer, not just pastors. And that's because a well-developed theology provides bumpers or guardrails that keep us from going off spiritual cliffs by believing things about God that are not true. And so Paul's trying to help the Corinthians see that by denying the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, you can't claim to be a Christian and believe Jesus died on the cross, but believe, not believe he was resurrected. Paul's trying to convey it's all part of the gospel. And if you deny the resurrection, you're sinning against God by calling him a liar. You all don't want to do that, do you? Of course not. I doubt that Paul said you all. That's just 
me having spent some time in Texas going to seminary. It's where that comes from, but you get the point. Letter B of another problem that shows up in doubting Jesus' resurrection is that Christians lose their credibility. They lose their credibility. He says we, we'd be found misrepresenting God. It's a hypothetical statement that Paul's making here, but he's saying, and I would paraphrase it in this way, hey, look, guys, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then we've been misrepresenting God. We would never do that because we fear God and we love Him. That would dishonor Him. Oh, and by the way, here's, here's, here's why the bumpers are important, the guardrails of a good, well-rounded theology in the Scriptures. Not believing in the resurrection, not only does it call God a liar, but it also says Satan is more powerful than God. Because Satan, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, holds the power over death. So, so again, the Corinthians are going off the rails. They're going off a cliff, and Paul's trying to pull them back onto the road, going, whoa, 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 hold on here. You don't want to call God a liar, and you don't want to somehow imply that Satan is more powerful than God. That can't be true. No way. Next, letter C. We would have no forgiveness. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins, he says. Verse 17. Now, now wait a minute, Paul. I thought the Bible taught that all Christ had to do was die for my sins on the cross. Actually, the resurrection was proof that God the Father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. This is a nod to Romans 4.25. You can jot that down and look it up later. But in Romans 4.25, this is where we're told that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification is a judicial act of God where he declares the believer righteous because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, even though the believer is totally guilty of treason against God. So Paul again is saying, hey, look, Corinthians, if you don't believe the resurrection happened, then you're not forgiven for your sins because part of being forgiven is Jesus rising from the dead as well. And then the fourth problem we create by doubting Jesus' resurrection is letter D. We would have no hope. We would have no hope. Verse 19 is a stunning verse. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning here on earth, if, if, if knowing Christ only helps us here on earth, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Hope is the confident expectation of a better future. However, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we would, we'd have nothing to look forward to in the future. This would mean Jesus was unable to conquer death for us. And that he wasn't really God. And that all the suffering Christians had endured was for nothing. It would mean the world was right. But God, the apostles, and all those who had sacrificed for the faith were wrong. 
And of course, we know this isn't true. What we do know is that there is life beyond the grave. And what we do know is that real hope, real hope is found when we receive the gift of eternal life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's where real hope is. And that's why Jesus' resurrection is a preview of the Christ follower's future resurrection. Let's look at the final uh, paragraph, verses 20 to 28. Paul continues, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain. And he is accepted. Who put all things in subjection to him? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Yes, I know this is a wordy passage, and it is difficult to understand. So I'm going to do my best to simplify it for you. Here's point four on your outline. Here's what Paul's saying in verses 20 to 28. The future resurrection of Christ followers can be proven theologically. The future resurrection of Christ followers can be proven theologically. In verse 20... The apostle declares the conclusion to the argument he's been making. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits, it's an interesting word. It's, it comes from the Old Testament. It's, it's a word used in the Old Testament that refers to a down payment or a guarantee of more to come in the future. So when Paul says, Christ's resurrection was the first fruit. He's saying it's a preview, a down payment, or a guarantee of more resurrections to come in the future. Notice then in verses 21 and 22, Paul connects the resurrection all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. By natural birth, we are all descendants of Adam and we all have inherited his sin nature. Adam's disobedience brought death to all who follow him in birth. That's what Paul's saying here. However, through a spiritual rebirth, by being born again, we can become descendants of Christ and inherit the obedient life that Christ lived on this earth. That's the connection between Adam and Christ. Or another way we could say this is, when Adam and Eve chose their will over God's in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was closed. 
But when Jesus chose his Father's will over his own, heaven was opened. Let me say that again. When Adam and Eve chose their will over God's, the Garden of Eden was closed. But when Jesus chose his Father's will over his own, heaven was opened. Now, what we see happening in verses 23 to 28 is a quick overview of future end times events that include the Lord resurrecting the bodies of those who are dead in Christ. That's a term that he uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It simply means those who knew Christ, who passed away, their spirit or their soul is in heaven with the Lord, but their body still lies in the ground. And then what he describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, when the rapture takes place, is that Christ will come from the heavens with all the souls who knew him at their death, and their bodies will be resurrected and reunited with the souls, and they'll be given new resurrection bodies. So this is Paul's way of saying in verses 23, 28, 28, there's a plan. God's executing it. And this is just the beginning. And so, his conclusion, if I were to boil it all down and simplify it, all Christ followers will receive a new resurrected body in the future. And that is a great reason to hope. Now, I didn't have time to unpack the rest of this chapter where he goes into more detail on that. But if you want, you can write down the scripture references that you see there in which he explains this. Uh, It's in verse uh, 22, verse 42, verse 52, and verse 54, where Paul describes what the new resurrected bodies of believers will look like and how that will happen. Now, I have to say before we close, I cannot... On Easter Sunday, I cannot just close in prayer without explaining how someone can have the hope of a future resurrection. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's possible for you to have that hope. That that you will one day conquer death. And you can do this by simply voicing a prayer from the sincerity of your heart that sounds something like this. Dear Jesus, I agree with you that I am a sinner who needs to be saved. Would you please forgive me for my sins and for living my life without you? I want to turn from my sin and I want to follow you, Jesus. I believe you died on the cross for my sins And that you rose again three days later so that I could be redeemed. Please come into my life and take control and change me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And what we know from the scriptures is that if you voice a prayer like that, with sincerity in your heart, the Lord promises to give you the gifts of forgiveness, peace with Him, a secure relationship with Him, access to Him in prayer, eternal life, and so much more. Of course, if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you after the service. 
about how to make that a reality for you. Now, this is typically the point of the message where I share a couple applications. Those of you who attend here regularly or worship here as members know that. An application answers the question, what must I do now that I've heard this text or studied it? What am I supposed to do to apply it to my life? However, instead of sharing applications today, I'd like to share three implications instead. An implication in preaching or personal Bible study is a conclusion that is implied or a statement about how the text should impact our lives. And so I have three implications. And I wanted to share these because I wanted to do everything I could to draw a straight line from the resurrection that Paul's talking about to hope. What is the hope that we can have? And so here's the first one, the first implication for those of you that know the Lord. Number one, we can age with hope. As we age, our bodies begin to fail us in many ways, requiring surgeries, therapies, medications, supplements, changes in lifestyle, and much more. Professional athletes retire in their late 30s, or eventually, if you're Tom Brady. Workers have to retire in their 60s. Some move into nursing homes in their 70s or 80s. This is all a byproduct of the fall in Genesis 3. However, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, we don't lose heart about this. Though our outer self, meaning our physical body, is wasting away, our inner self, meaning our soul, is being renewed day by day. He's saying that even though our bodies are decaying, and I think Paul was experiencing this himself when he wrote it in 2 Corinthians, even though our bodies are decaying, as we walk with the Lord, our souls are being renewed and prepared to spend eternity with Him. So we can age with hope, knowing that what's happening to our bodies is not forever, because we'll get a new resurrection body in the future. Number two, the second implication, we can suffer with hope. We can suffer with hope. The promise of the future resurrection provides tremendous hope for those plagued with chronic health problems, battling depression, or aching from the pain of betrayal or other sins committed against you. This doctrine reminds us that what we're experiencing on earth is not the end. It's temporary. It also gives us the courage and the power to endure suffering for our faith. We can, we can be bold in talking about our faith in Christ and, and be rejected by the world and be hurt and wounded by the world because they hate our Savior. And that's okay. We can do that with courage and confidence and boldness because... We will be with the Lord for so much longer, exponentially longer than we'll be here. And no matter what the world does to our bodies, we'll get a new resurrection body in the future. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that sharing in Christ's sufferings allows him to experience the power that resurrected Jesus. 
It allowed him to do more than he could have done on his own by having resurrection power living within him and suffering for Christ. And finally, third implication, we can grieve with hope. We can grieve with hope. The doctrine of the resurrection allows us to mourn the death of loved ones with hope instead of without hope as the world does. Sure, and I've done plenty of funerals for unbelievers, and they say things like, oh, he's in a better place, or she's, she's cooking her favorite meal with Jesus right now, even though she never went to church and had no fruits of repentance anywhere in her life. These are things that unbelievers say to try and comfort themselves, to try and give themselves hope. They're trying to muster it up, but it's false hope. It's not genuine And so some in the church in Thessalonica were afraid their deceased loved ones who knew Christ would miss the rapture. And in response, Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. You see the reference there on the keynote. He writes to them and says, no, 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 no. The dead in Christ will see, they'll be seen again when they're resurrected with us. This is a great comfort to those who have experienced miscarriage who have had a stillborn or have, have lost a special needs child who was not mentally or spiritually able to, to comprehend the gospel, this doctrine of the resurrection gives real hope. So, speaking of grieving, I came across a story this week that vividly illustrates how the doctrine of the resurrection should impact us at Christian funerals. John Chrysostom uh, was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. He was a bold lion for biblical truth in his day. He shared once in a sermon how irritated he had become after witnessing several funerals, funerals in which he saw believers loudly and publicly grieving like they were unbelievers. And so he explains, quote, When I behold the wailings in public places, the groaning over those who have departed this life, the howlings and all the other inappropriate behavior, I am ashamed before unbelievers, Jews, and heretics who see it, and indeed, all who mock our faith. Chrysostom then went on in the sermon to complain that such conduct undermined the Bible's teaching on the resurrection And it only encouraged unbelievers to continue not believing in Christ. So Chrysostom then asked, What could be more unbecoming than a person who claims to have been crucified with Christ to tear their hair and shriek hysterically in the presence of death? Instead, this early church father argued Christians should be mourning for unbelievers who still live in fear of death. And have no faith at all in the resurrection. And then he drove home his point with these arresting words. He said to his congregation and those visiting that day, May God grant that you all depart this life unwailed. Unwailed. I have that same desire for all of you. And I want that for myself as well.
And so, Jesus Christ's resurrection is a preview of the Christ follower's future resurrection. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.